Well, moving right along in the book of Revelation, we're in chapter uh, 6, and uh, we just encourage you to get on the... Uh, Get on the website of the church, go to YouTube channel Calvary Prineville, and you can watch our YouTube videos we've been doing. Uh, If you like our church Facebook page, you can see the live stream on that. If you're ever missing a Sunday, that's where you can uh, tune into our live stream about 10 a.m. And and then we also have podcasts and just tons of ways for you to catch up and listen to the book of Revelation. And so uh, for the sake of not doing a, a giant recap uh overview every single week um would just encourage you to get your get your good foundation by listening to the past teachings and uh now we find ourselves in chapter six where um the time of the tribulation has started where god is pouring out uh his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. And I just, you know, if this is your first time here this Sunday, I would just encourage you not to, oh, wrath, you know. Whoa, there he goes. I knew it. The minute I came to church, I knew I'd be hearing about wrath, you know. And, and um, I would just encourage you to listen to, you know, from chapter 6 on in the book of Revelation. Go back and listen. And we see that, you know, God's wrath is a part of, of his true holiness. Um, because he is a just judge. He can't just wink at sin. Uh, He doesn't just sweep it under the carpet, but he's got to deal with wickedness. He's got to deal with depravity. He's got to deal with sin. And what we've found in our studying of the wrath of God is that it's at the wrath of God that we actually also find the deep love of God. And we determine that God has figured out a way to um, be absolutely just, but also absolutely merciful uh, through Jesus at the cross. Because it was there at the cross of Calvary where, where Jesus took our place in substitution as a sacrifice for our sins. And God was able to mete out his punishment towards sinners on a perfect spotless um, man, uh, the God man, the son of God, Jesus. And uh, he was also able to then give mercy to anyone who would believe in Jesus. And so uh, while we cringe at wrath, we ought not because it does show his true justice. And we all desire justice, don't we? We all want real justice. I mean, it's a cultural thing right now to be crying out for justice. Um, but also how wonderful that there's mercy for anyone, there's forgiveness for anyone who would come to Jesus and receive what he's done at the cross. And our sins, though they are scarlet, uh, can be made as white as snow. And so uh, there's this uh, process of wrath that is being poured out. And the description is that of, of a scroll being unrolled in the book of Revelation chapter 5 and 6. We see this scroll And the only one who is able to open the scroll and to loose the little seals on it is Jesus. He's the only one worthy to open the scroll and to look at it. And the reason is because he was the one that was slain for the world. He was the one that has given himself to redeem the world. And because he's shown such great love and compassion for the world and has given an opportunity for the world to be saved... He's also the only one worthy to be the one to say, you know what, you didn't receive 
my way of salvation, and now here comes judgment. Here comes justice. And so the last couple weeks, we've been peeling away the seals. As Jesus peels away the seals, each seal is a different judgment. And the first four of those seals uh, has been known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we've done a study through that where we see the Antichrist coming on the scene. We, we see warfare and um, fighting come to the earth. We see um, famine and plagues and disease come onto the world. And uh, we see poverty come onto the world and uh, widespread death. And so now we come to new ground where the fifth seal will be opened. So hopefully that kind of at least gives you a little bit of an understanding. Okay, there's a scroll being opened, and before it's open, there's these seals that are being loosed. Each seal's a different judgment. And then here's the fifth one. And the fifth seal um, is in verse 9. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And so here we see in heaven, in the presence of God, there's an altar. In fact, when you study uh, the book of Hebrews and you study the Exodus account and the building of the tabernacle, the book of Hebrews tells us that Moses was given specific instruction on how he was to build the tabernacle because it, the tabernacle, was an exact replica of the heavenly tabernacle and what is in heaven. Uh, that there's this throne and there's a mercy seat and there's the lamps and all those things and they all point to the gospel. And, uh, and there in heaven we see an altar. And under the altar, safe in God's presence, are the souls of those who've been martyred already during the tribulation. They've been martyred for the word of God and for the testimony uh, which they held. And so uh, one thing we know about the tribulation is that the first part of this judgment period, there's going to be just such wickedness going on that anyone who would come to the Lord in that time is under great danger uh, for being persecuted and for being martyred. And these martyrs, their souls are kind of resting there under the altar. It's definitely a unique scene, isn't it? A unique scene in heaven. You know, this is something kind of new for those of you that are maybe starting to read the Bible for the first time. You're like, whoa, there's an altar and souls, you know, and, and uh, yeah, there's these eternal souls of these individuals there under this altar and they've been martyred. They've, they've been very courageous and bold in the world to, um, to stay with the Lord in this great time of persecution. In verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And so we see, here's a cry for judgment. Here are those who have died. Their family members have probably been martyred, their wives, their children, their relatives, their friends, and they are wanting justice. And here is a case of people saying, okay, Lord, like, uh, you just going to wink at this? Or do you even know it's happening? You know, what, what is going on? How long? And that's, that's really a cry of the psalmist. If you read the Psalms, it's often prayed out. How long until you're going to do something, Lord? How long must I wait? But notice in their plea, they notice his attributes, that he is holy. How, how long? But, you know, in this, Lord, I just know that there's no one like you. You are set apart. 
You are so righteous and, and true. You are trustworthy. You're right. How long, though, until you judge and bring vengeance? Vengeance belongs to the Lord, the word tells us. Revenge is the Lord's. You don't have to try to seek it on your own because one day there will be vengeance by the just judge. And, and these martyrs are just, we're curious how long till our blood that was shed by this Antichrist, riding the white horse, persecuting people who have since the rapture, now they're still on the earth, and they have since become those who've put their faith in Jesus. And it says in verse 11, here's basically their answer. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. And so what is the state of their souls there under the altar? It's a state of rest. And I was thinking of that, uh, you know, with the tombstones that are out there, that R.I.P., you know, rip. Sure is a sentimental little term, isn't it? Uh, uh, rest in peace. And that is, you know, for those who are in Jesus who have passed, uh, they have found rest. They have found true rest. And, and they are told, go ahead and rest a little while longer. And it's just going to be a little while till we're going to see vengeance poured out. And it's just going to be a little while longer because there's actually more people that are supposed to be added to their number. It says, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was complete. So it's, it's actually not over yet. There's still going to be more persecution. Here's a white robe of righteousness, which in scripture is a, it's a reward for those who have overcome and have been faithful and have been true to the Lord. It's, it's really a, a picture of those who've put their faith in Jesus. They've been given these white robes of righteousness, but here, just rest in your new white sweet hotel robe that you've got. You know, it's just so cozy and plush and you know, uh, and, and just rest in that. And um, I kind of added that part. Maybe you're like, hotel robe, you know. It's in the Greek. It's the original. So, and, uh, but they're going to be killed. There's more that are to be killed. And, uh, and, you know, oftentimes we wonder the same question. When is there going to be justice? When is there going to be vengeance? And I like what Adrian Rogers, Pastor Adrian Rogers says, God is never early and he is never late. He's always right on time. You can trust in him. You can have patience in him. And, and there's this heartfelt prayer of the martyrs that is sincere and it's biblically grounded even from the Psalms. They're not crying out for personal vengeance, but for divine justice. And they trust this in the sovereign God. And I, I like what one writer said, it just kind of said, Lord, this is how I feel about being martyred. And I leave the rest up to you, my God. So that's the fifth seal, that there's going to be major persecution and martyrdom during the tribulation. And then we have the sixth seal, six out of seven, six out of seven seals, okay? Uh, and it is, I looked, verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became like blood. So a few things to happen in this next outpouring of judgment on the world. Uh, number one, an earthquake, a great earthquake. And if you study the scripture, earthquakes often accompany divine visitations in scripture. 
This is really an act of God, a great earthquake. We're going to read, we've read already, even in these first six chapters, a lot of earthquakes, and we're going to uh, read of them later on. Chapter 16, verse 18, we're going to read of a great and mighty earthquake. And then we see uh, that the sun, or rather, how's it phrased? The sun becomes black as of sackcloth. And it's a dark cloth that's made of goat's hair worn in times of mourning. The sun goes dark. And it's interesting that, you know, when you see these great earthquakes that happen, and, and if you study a biblical earthquake, massive earthquake, lots of rubble, lots of debris. And when the pollution comes up from the earth, from various forms of these acts of God, oftentimes the sun can just almost be blotted out or it turns, we're going to read a lot about blood red suns or moons or, you know, just these, these catastrophic events that would cause, you know, what could possibly cause the sun to go black? Well, either it just certainly, you know, goes out because of the Lord or, You could certainly see how all of this rubble and debris and pollution from such a great earthquake could cause this. And this is actually fulfillment of Isaiah 24, 20, where it's prophesied that the earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon turns blood red here as we move on. And that's prophecy of Joel 20, 30, 31. And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so, Um, Even the Old Testament kind of helps us understand how could the sun become these colors or the moon become these colors. And uh, man, there's blood and fire and pillars of smoke coming out in these times of judgment. And so that's certainly a good description of what could be happening during this sixth seal judgment. And it goes on though. I mean, that all sounds pretty bad. You've got earthquakes, you've got a darkening of the world, you've got Um, you know, probably this mass pollution and the effects of this earthquake. But verse 13 goes on and shows it's even worse. The stars of heaven fell to the earth. As a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And I'm sure many of you have those fruit trees that you get to go out in those times of harvest and Maybe you've ever, you just grab that branch and you just shake it real good. It's just pop, 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 drop, drop. You've seen those machines that go up to a tree and they pinch the tree and, uh, and then they kind of have an umbrella go out around the pincher and this machine will just hug it, hug it, hug it, hug it, hug it, hug it, you know, and it'll catch all the fruit in the umbrella and then the umbrella kind of funnels it into the bucket and like you're done, right? Uh, I recently went and uh, plucked fruit at my mother's home at her, uh, she has a fruit salad tree, we call it, and it's a tree that's been grafted with plums and peaches and apples and, and it can grow these different fruits. And uh, as I'm reaching the tallest branch, I'm leaning in and I hit this branch and all this, these fall, you know. And, and you can only imagine, though, when you're talking about the stars of heaven falling to the earth like uh, these ripe figs falling during harvest season. The stars of heaven fell, it says. The word translated stars here simply refers to any celestial body 
large or small, having the appearance of, of a star. It can refer to objects in, spl- in space uh, that include asteroids and meteors. And so there's probably some kind of meteor shower or asteroids uh, striking the earth. And I had to Google this kind of stuff. You know, it makes you want to have some fun research time. And I've got a couple pictures. Uh, one is of an Arizona what's called the uh, meteor hole in Arizona. And uh, something like 14 football fields can fit uh, in the bottom of this um, meteor hole. I'm not sure if we got it up there. I did upload it from home. So at any point you want to throw up some sweet meteor hole pictures, um, go for it. Um, But also, so in Arizona, they got this giant one. It's a great tourist attraction. And then in our very own Oregon, not very far from here, uh, there's hole in the ground, which some of you were born there, apparently. It looks like you crawled out of it this morning. But, um, okay. Uh, but, you know, it's really just on the other side of Lapine near Silver Lake. And uh, it's this big, oh, there we go. We're just going to Google it there. Uh, so this is the Arizona. Uh, the top one there is the Arizona. I don't know what that is. I think that's from a movie. Um <laughs> And so it gives you some ideas of, you know, imagine meteors hitting the earth during this sixth seal judgment and, uh, and what catastrophe that could bring about on the, uh, the earth. In uh, November 23rd, 1992 Newsweek cover story called Doomsday Science, Daniel Yosman of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory made the statement, and I quote, Space is filled with objects that threaten Earth. Earth runs its course about the sun in a swarm of asteroids. Sooner or later, our planet will be struck by one of them. It goes on to say, on Kitt Peak near Tucson, there's an observatory that charts the paths of asteroids that threaten to collide with planet Earth. Astronomers have identified thousands of asteroids larger than half a mile wide with orbits that could cross our path. Each of these cosmic projectiles poses a threat to our way of life. And so, um, you know, it's really a matter of when some of these asteroids and meteors will hit our Earth, you know, uh, scientists say. And, you know, reading some different scholars, even in the last day or two, um, you know, there's, there's different understandings of what this could be. For me, as I read and with my uh, interpretation classes that I've taken, um, it's very simply, can, you know, plainly can be a meteor shower. You know, it can very simply be what, what it says it's going to be. I think these are, this is really something that can happen especially as God pours out his judgment. Earthquakes from God can happen on this earth. Uh, these meteor showers, you know, the, the pollution that can blot out the sun and the moon and those kinds of things. But even reading very re- well-respected men that I love, you know, um, as they look at some of the Old Testament prophecies, they see this as, um, you know, that, that the stars falling at this time in the tribulation period are pictures of pastors, you know, of of churches that they were not saved, they were not raptured, and they just fall into these false gospels that will be taught during the tribulation period, uh, that, the, that the mountains that will end up crumbling, that these are governments that are toppling and falling and anarchy that's being, you know. And so there's different interpretations of this. Um, I, I think if the best 
If the plain sense makes the best sense, try not to come up with any other sense unless you come up with nonsense, you know. So, um, and you may find me kind of doing that at times. I'm doing my best to keep to the plain sense, though, as we, as we go through this. And so, interesting, verse 14, then the scry, the, the scry, I haven't talked much this morning. I've been up since 4.30, but haven't talked a whole lot, so... How now, brown cow? Okay. Those are my vocal warm-ups. Okay. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. Okay. And every mountain and island was moved of its place. The sky receded as a scroll. You know, uh, when my dad passed away, um, for a number of years, I would have dreams about him. I would have dreams about him um, showing up uh, in, in uh, random places, but most of my dreams, he would show up just before the rapture of the church would happen, and he would tell me, he's coming for you right now, and then, um, you know, all kinds of crazy apocalyptic stuff would happen out the window, and I'd be like, oh my god, you know, and so this is just my dreams, this isn't biblical stuff happening, okay. Um, well, the dead are going to come back and visit us? You know, I'm like, yes, but also no. Okay, um, mostly no on that. Okay, plainly no. Okay, <laughs> unless my dreams are true, then. Oh, I'm teasing, okay. Um, but uh, in one of my dreams, uh, dad appears and he leads me to um, a men's muster that we're having where it's at a men's muster and he leads all the men in the muster to the conference hall where we've been worshiping and studying. And as we're on our way to the conference hall, the sky rolls back and the throne room of heaven is shown. And Jesus says, come up here. And men begin shooting up from the men's retreat up to heaven in a rapture. And um, that's probably going to happen um, at this next men's muster. So you don't want to miss it. Okay. You thought your announcement for the women's retreat was good. The rapture is going to happen at ours. Okay. Just joking on that. Do you recall the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul by Horatio Spafford? One of the verses is, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so. It is well with my soul. We can say amen to that, right? Lord, haste the day when my faith will be sight. And the day of the Lord comes. The, the, when that day, when the, the, the clouds or the sky be rolled back as a scroll. But also we read there that every mountain and island is moved out of its place. This is something that's never happened in human history. So for those that hold various views on when the day of the Lord has happened. Some even say, oh, it happened back in 70 AD. That was, you know, and, and now we live in the millennial reign and all this stuff. And some of just like, man, I just can't get there where you're at. I'm, no, sorry. You know, I just, it's me humbly, but I just think you're missing a whole lot of scripture and stuff that can really have happened or is going to happen. And I think it's totally within the means of the creator of the universe as he's pouring out wrath upon a world that's rejected his son, that when he says the mountains are going to you know, crumble and, uh, and the stars are going to fall and 
Um, every mountain and island will be moved out of its place. So just imagine Mount Hood, Mount Shasta, the three sisters, Bachelor, and Mount St. Helens, just moved to a different location. I remember in 2015 when the Nepal earthquake um, happened, they were saying like Mount Everest, it was something like Mount Everest like sank like an inch or something like that, or three inches. I mean, it was like, that was such a massive earthquake. The Himalayas were affected. And you can imagine this great earthquake where uh, the Hawaiian Islands and Long Island and Alcatraz and every island is moved out of its place, you know? And they look out at the ocean one day and they're like, that island used to be over here. And, you know, and it's just, it's odd. And, and then all the Alcatraz inmates escape. You know, and it's, okay, I don't know. That might have happened already, according to Sean Connery. In Isaiah 34, 4, all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from the fig tree, Isaiah tells us. And verse 15 tells us, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And so really you have a description of everyone who was a part of the, the Roman citizenship or the Roman population. You've got the commanders and you've got the kings and you've got rich people and mighty men. And then you've got the the, the slave or the free, everyone is encompassed here, which shows us that truly there is no partiality with God, either with his salvation and his mercy or with his judgment and his wrath. And as Psalms 2.2 tells us, the kings of the earth had set themselves and all of the rulers took counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ or his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, like it's a picture of when the people uh, crucified Jesus and counseled on how they would kill him. And the Lord in heaven was laughing and held them in derision with contemptuous laughter because they can't do anything to him. <laughs> but he can to them. And these Roman kings and generals are hiding in the caves and in the clefts of the rocks. In verse 16, and they said, to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. And so these generals, these kings, these mighty men and, and the slave and the free, all of them, everyone is hiding. They're going into the belly of the earth, hoping for protection. There, Just fall on us. It'd be better to be crushed and die in here than to face the wrath of the Lamb. Now, it's one of the most ironic and unexpected phrases in the whole Bible here. It sounds contradictory, paradoxical, incredible, and it's this phrase that for four weeks has just been simmering in my heart. It's the phrase at the end of verse 16, the wrath of the lamb. A lamb by its nature is gentle and meek and passive. 
we used to have lambs as a child, and we had a blue healer puppy. What are we going to name this blue healer puppy? And he used to run and chase the lambs and jump up and bite their ears and cause their ears to bleed and scar them all up. And so we named him Trouble. <laughs> he was our blue healer dog that lived to his old age, and he was Trouble. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, those little lammies, you know, they just were trying to hide in the corner, and they were just getting attacked by this um, blue healer. And, and here, though, that a lamb that's normally gentle and meek and passive not many animals less threatening than a lamb, maybe a sloth, I don't know. And yet here we come to this scripture to consider that is the wrath of the lamb. And so this lamb, the lamb of heaven, is lion-like and the lion is lamb-like. Scripture reveals that the lion-like lamb, Jesus, twice cleansed the temple. He angrily condemned the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees, calling them serpents and broods of vipers. It's this lion-like lamb in the Gospels who says more about eternal fire and judgment of Gehenna, also translated hell, than anyone else in the Bible. And so to have a balanced view of the Savior portrayed in the Bible holds that tension between his love and his holiness, his compassion and his justice, his grace and his righteousness, his mercy and his wrath. Warren Wearsby was the former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago puts it in perspective this way, if men and women will not yield to the love of God and be changed by the grace of God, then there is no way for them to escape the wrath of God. And I would ask you today, have you yielded to the love of God? Have you surrendered to his love to his grace and to his mercy? Have you let him change you in your inner man? Have you let him forgive you by what he did on the cross? Have you surrendered your rights and your pride and your hopes and your dreams and all you think you are and all you think you ought to be to who he is and who he said you are and what he's done for you? Have you surrendered to Jesus? Have you let him change you? Have you been born again? Have you been saved? If you reject his grace, his mercy, his love, and his life, there is no way for you to escape his wrath. And the things that we read of in Revelation will abide on you. And you will be like these men, even though you may be mighty, even though you may be rich, even though you may be a free man, you will hide from him and still be found. You will cry out for rocks to fall on you and to hide you from his wrath. But the beautiful thing for the Christian, for those who have surrendered to him, is that as 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And a few chapters earlier, in chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians, we can wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
And verse 17 tells us in our text today in Revelation 6, for the great day of his wrath has come. That great day has come. I mean, these events of human history are so sobering to think of. You know, the day that you wonder, when will the attack come? You know, you think of all the the wars throughout history and all the villages that were just waiting for that greater army to attack them. You're waiting for the invasion to be the, the patriots of the American Revolution and watch the Boston Harbor fill up with British ships and to watch them begin to come towards land or to be the Germans and to be waiting for some sort of attack. And then you see the allies out of the fog on D-Day come across the channel at Normandy and the great day of the wrath of America has come and who is able to stand. And then I'll tell you, this is exponentially more severe here today. As you know, one day God's going to deal with all of this. And here they cry out, the great day of his wrath, the wrath of the lamb has come. And who is able to stand? Well, chapter seven shows us who is going to be able to stand. And so surprise, we're going to go on into the next chapter now. Isn't that special? Who's ready for it? Okay. Might have to kind of wake yourself up a little bit. Okay. Because the answer is given to us in chapter 7. We don't want to just stop with a to-be-continued there for us. Who is able to stand in the midst of the day of his great wrath? Well, let's check it out here. Verse 1 of chapter 7. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. Um, And so it's an interesting moment here in the book of Revelation, and it's one of a few like it, where you might notice even the heading in your Bible, that at verse 12 in our previous chapter, it says, the sixth seal is something like cosmic disturbances. Then you'll notice clear over in chapter 8, perhaps your heading says, the seventh seal which begins the next seven judgments, okay? So we have this chapter in between the sixth and seventh seal judgments, and it's what's called a parenthetical chapter. Okay, so if you want, you can even kind of take with your pencil and put parentheses at the beginning of verse one of chapter seven and at the end of verse 17 of chapter seven, because this is really parentheses. It's telling us, what is going on uh, oftentimes in heaven or behind the scenes as this is taking place. So the wrath is happening. People are running into caves. They're shaking. The sun is black. The moon is red. The mountains have been moved and islands are moved. All of these things. Who is able to deliver us from the wrath? Who can stand? And then parentheses. And after these things, I saw these four angels. And so we have this crazy spiritual scene. Four angels standing at four corners. This is really a figure of speech implying the four directional points of the compass. And so really, you know, north, south, east, west. Picture a map of just four angels that are there. And they're holding back the four winds of the earth. This is a 
common scriptural language here, these four winds or the four corners, and these four angels in their might are holding back winds. And the word holding refers to exerting great effort to restrain something. The winds are struggling and straining to break free, but these angels are exerting great effort in holding them back. And uh, we go for walks occasionally at our house, and we have a couple little mini yapper dogs, you know, little chewinis or something of the sort. And uh, when we walk, Tatum, our little three-year-old, just turned three, likes to hold Bruiser. You know, she likes to hold the leash for Bruiser. And uh, there's a reason his name's Bruiser. He's a little uh, go-getter. He's aggressive. He likes to go after whatever hops out of a bush, you know, or something like that. And she'll be walking along, just so cute, in her mittens and her little coat or whatever, you know. And then, and just this little Bruiser dog can just, you know, and she just got, doesn't have enough strength to hold on to that. And, uh, and, you know, here we have the angels that are just like holding back, holding back these winds. And, uh, and the language says that they're to do so. It says, uh, so that the wind should not blow at the end of verse one. They're holding these winds of the earth so that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. And so what are the consequences, first of all, of no wind? If this is part of this parentheses of what's happening. I, for one, love the refreshment of a cool breeze. I don't know about you on a hot summer day. Of course, in the old days, the ships used to run on the wind and transport cargo and produce and life. Something about the science of these trees that produce oxygen and fresh air. But as Jeff Lezine says, that the wind would stop blowing around the world may not sound very serious until we stop and think about the dramatic effects. For one, air pollution would hang over every city and would not blow away. So if we think what we've learned of the earthquakes and the, you know, the, the pollution, you know, when we have fire season here in central Oregon, we love it when the wind just blows that smoke on out of here. And yet, and yet right now that the winds are being held back. Second, and much more important, if the winds were to stop, it would stop raining. As ocean water evaporates into the atmosphere, it's carried by wind over land masses where it cools, condenses into clouds, and then returns to the earth in the form of rain. If the winds were to stop completely, the evaporated water from the ocean would simply rise straight up into the atmosphere and remain there. This would produce an immediate worldwide drought and add to the famine and lack of water already taking place during the tribulation. In many ways, the wind is like the lungs of our planet, Lazine says, and is critical to our survival. And when we get to chapter 11, we'll read that there will be no rain for three and a half years. Undoubtedly, this is connected to the lack of wind that we read about here. So the wind is held back. In verse 12, then I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. Many Bible scholars say that in the scripture, good and beautiful things of hope come from the east. And here comes an angel with a seal of the living God. And he cries out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And he says, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So this Angel of hope, this good angel, comes out of the east in the midst of the holding back of the wind, and he has a seal. He has this mark or this stamp or this inscription. 
And it seems that he is going to stamp in some way the servants of God. The seal is a sign in Ezekiel 9.4 of divine possession and protection. Gordon Fee notes, the seal in this case is the stamp of divine ownership and authenticity. Thus it function as divine uh, commitment that God's own people will not experience the divine wrath when it is poured out. At the same time, Fee says, this marking of the foreheads of God's servants stands in deliberate contrast to the latter markings in the foreheads of the followers of the beasts out of the earth. Look at verse 3. So this angel said, don't harm the earth. So they're, they're holding back a wind, and it seems these winds are going to bring with them some sort of judgment. Don't harm the sea, the trees. In just a little while, in a couple weeks, we're going to be reading of all sorts of crazy harm coming upon the planet earth. Uh, but don't harm them until there's this seal. And when you read the scripture, it's a beautiful thing that God does is that he seals those who are his. When you read the New Testament, when someone becomes a Christian, they are sealed with the spirit of God as a guarantee that they are saved, that they are born again. And so I would just question you today and ask you, as you've already been challenged, have you been saved? Have you been born again? Have you been surrendered to the will of the Lord and to his grace? Have you received his changing work in your heart? And I would ask you today, have you been sealed? Have you been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God? You know, the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord is able to uh, differentiate, that was a tough one, uh, those who are his. Have you been sealed? Nothing more disappointing than going to the gate at some event, right? And thinking you have the right ticket or the right pass. And, and they look at your, your uh, ticket. And they look at your seal and it's not correct. It's not right. And you get turned away at the gate. What a horror that will be on that day when we stand before the Lord. And we have not been sealed by the spirit of promise. And we see also in this verse that it is the servants of God that are sealed. As Isaiah 54 17 says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. And so the heritage that we have as servants of the Lord is that we are sealed. But then we're going to see a group of people just a little bit in our text that they are going to be servants of the Lord during the great tribulation. And they have a heritage of being protected during the tribulation. There's a seal upon them so that nothing can harm them. Let's go down to verse four. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So just so you know, you're going to get into some pretty exciting verses here, okay? Because the number is carefully chronicled. I hope you're excited as I am. Okay, here we go. Verse 5, of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. 
Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, verse 7, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Okay, hold on. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Man, oh man, who are these thousands of thousands of thousands of people? Well, of course, it's anybody who's been saved in the Calvary Chapel movement. It's easy to see. The word is very specific as to who these 144,000 are. The Jehovah's Witnesses, led under Charles Russell since the late 1800s, have believed that they are the 144,000. And then once they began to grow above 144,000, they were in a predicament. And so it's, well, the first ones are these 144,000 that get to be in heaven. And then the rest... You don't get to be the 104,000, you just dwell on the earth, okay? So, um, okay, so no, right? No. Um, the Seventh-day Adventists believe that anyone who has worshipped according to the true Sabbath of the Old Testament, that they are the 144,000. And yet, clear, basic Bible interpretation and reading context is so helpful when we're trying to interpret the word. And this is a simple one. As you start in verse 4, the second half says, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And then just to help us out a little bit and make it a little bit more clear so that there's no confusion there's the next four verses just listing out the tribes and the number. So there's not any confusion. And it's really exciting because it does show us God's heart for Israel and that it remains. And when you read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, you come to the conclusion that God is not done with Israel and that we have not replaced Israel but rather that we are those who provoke Israel to jealousy, having an intimate, sweet relationship with the Messiah. We say to them in our very lives today, come on, this is amazing. We have life, we have joy, we have forgiveness of sins, and we've been reconciled to our God. And the book of Romans says that one day all Israel will be saved. Their salvation, though, will not be based upon their pedigree, but upon the grace of God. The book of Romans tells us it's not about race, it's about grace. It's not about our pedigree and our heritage, it's about what Jesus has done that saves us. And so one day our provocation will lead many to the Lord, and the Lord will use this great tribulation period, which we're going to study in weeks to come, which is primarily for Israel and for their redemption, though wrath is being poured out upon earth, he's going to use it to draw them back. So whenever anyone comes a knocking on your door and tells you that you can be part of the 144,000, you need to ask them, which tribe, please? All right? Because it's clear that the, the tribes have been listed. And, um, and uh, I remember I had a friend back in the day. He had a Jeep 
uh, and the license plate said Levite. And, uh, and uh, we were washing it at a youth group car wash when a man came up and said, um, oh, hey, man, this is really cool. Uh, nice Jeep. And oh, it says Levite. And, and I said, yeah. Um, he's like, are you Jewish? And I said, oh, that's my friends. And he's not Jewish, but he looks Jewish. And, and the guy goes, oh, what does a Jew look like? And I said, well, okay. Um, see where you're going with that? And I said, well, mostly because he's been to Israel a few times and he likes to get the shawls and the things and, and he really appreciates, you know, the heritage of the Hebrews. And he says, well, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a, a Jew as well. And I said, oh, what tribe are you from? And he says, I don't know. And it was then I learned that there's the lost tribes of Israel, the 10 tribes that were carried away in captivity by the Assyrians. We have no record since the destruction of the temple who the Jews, what tribe they came from. And so it's amazing that on that day, the Lord who knows the DNA of every Jew that ever existed, he'll be able to say, you're of this tribe and you're of this tribe. And uh, there's a lot to say concerning this. Probably a few of you may have noticed that the tribes that are listed are different than other, other listing of tribes. And for the sake of time today, we're not get really get into that. It's really neither here nor there. And there's really easy explanations for it. Um, but you can read my notes if you'd like to know more about that, because we're going to move on and see the second group of people who can stand in the day of wrath. Who's the first group of people who can stand in the day of the wrath of the lamb? It's the 144,000 Jews that have been sealed. And then we're going to move on in verse nine to see another group. He says, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes and palm branches with palm branches in their hands. And so we have this beautiful group of people that are known as the tribulation saints. And it's believed in much of my recent reading, it was nice to be reminded of it, that it was the 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams that we just read about who have gone out into the world and have begun preaching the gospel. And they too have been going to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And here we see fruit from their endeavors, fruit from their missionary service, because we have the nations, the tribes, the peoples, and tongues here. And where are they? They are standing before the throne of God and they're clothed with white robes. Craig Keener says of these verses, here the promised multitude is gathered from all nations. The hope of the gospel has touched all people. And so in this massive crowd or this massive throng of redeemed in heaven, there's not the slightest hint of bigotry Uh, of ethnocentrism, of prejudice, or of racism. But we have all of the nations represented. And by the way, this isn't the first time we've seen this. We've seen it back in chapter 5, where we saw every tribe, tongue, people, and nation represented, which shows us that the mission of God has been accomplished by that point in history. Uh, And it will be, I should say, in a future sense. God's still doing it right now, and it will be done by then. Of the 11,243 people groups in the world, each of them is present in front of the throne of God. Each of them is represented. Of all the languages and of all the tribes, of all the clans and of all the families, each of them has a representation. 
of the 3,056 people groups who are unengaged right now in our world, each is represented here before the throne in chapter 7 of Revelation. During the dark days, H.A. Ironside says, during the dark days of the great tribulation, they will heed the testimony which will be carried to the ends of the earth by the Jewish missionaries. And Lazine says, it's a remarkable thing that the period of greatest judgment in the world will also be the time of the greatest salvation in the world. The question was asked, who is able to stand? And the answer is this, those to whom the Lord appoints to preach and those who respond by faith. Such an exciting thing to read these texts regarding the missionary heart of God. That God has a heart to reach all the peoples, all the tribes, all the tongues. And as Prineville folk, blue collar, a little rough around the edges. I'm right there with you, I think, you know. Many patriots, many who love our nation. We got to have the spirit of God tune our heart to his heart for the nations. We are radically in error if we do not have a love for other cultures, other languages, other colors of skin, other clothing styles, other foods. I mean, the the culture goes so deep and so far and so wide. But you know, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he unites us all together to be a beautiful kaleidoscope for his glory. It's amazing. Uh, right now, I want to share with you guys. You guys still awake? Sometimes you just got to do this. Just, it totally works, okay? I'm going to read to you this book, okay, just real quick. Okay, no. I am reading this book right now. It was actually um, during our, I can't say his name uh, for his protection, but it was our missionary contact in Nepal who was here earlier this year. And he was just encouraging me, and he said, you've got to read To the Golden Shore. You've got to read the life of Adoniram Judson. And I've heard of Adoniram Judson and love C.T. Studd, love John Patton. I've read their biographies even recently. And I'm finally getting to this book. And uh, amazing story. Can you just bear with me for a minute? Um, You know, uh, Adoniram's father, Adoniram Sr., was a preacher. And uh, he was a preacher in actually where the pilgrims uh, had their first Thanksgiving uh, with the natives. And uh, as he preached, uh, he went through really tough stuff in the church. And as Adon- Adoniram Jr. was born, um, Adoniram began to kind of, you know, question his faith. And as he went off to college, his best friends were agnostics who actually led him away from faith. And he began to um, not believe in God and not follow the Lord and broke his father's heart, broke his mother's heart. And as he went off on an adventure to New York to try to find himself he only found New York and the, the theater scene that he was going to try to write for to be empty and dark. And on his way back to just kind of continue to find himself, he was considering his father's faith. And he ended up uh, staying one night in an inn where all the rooms were full. Ever heard that story before? Okay. And they said, but we do have one room. Um, however, there's a dying man in it. This room is separated. It has a separator partition by, with a sheet. You don't have to see the guy, but he's probably going to die at some point tonight. 
And he's like, that'll be fine. We're used to death in this, you know, day and age. And he went and he lays there on his bed and he hears a little bit of moaning and groaning going on. And the whole time he's thinking about his father's faith and, you know, what, what do I believe anyways? And what if he's right? And, and he wakes up the next morning and goes downstairs and he says, you know, hey, is the, the man that was in my room with me okay? And the guy says, oh, no, he passed last night. And, and Adoniram says, well, what was his name? And he says, well, here's his name. And it was his best friend in college who had told him not to believe in God. And there on the other side of the sheet in the room, he had passed away that night. And that caused Adoniram to just completely run and search and, and find the Lord and figure out what he believed. And as he figured out that Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, he ended up reading biographies of generals and mighty men who'd been going to Burma and been going to India. And he began to read about a group of people who'd never heard the gospel before. In 2,000 years, they'd never been reached with the salvation of the Lord. And they don't know how to be forgiven of their sins. And, and he began to have it impressed upon his heart that he needed to be one who went. And as he studied, he found that at that point in the late 1700s, there had never been a missionary from the United States, from the Americas, go out to another nation to preach the gospel. And he began to develop with uh, about six other friends what became the first missionary society in America. And it wasn't without a whole lot of adventure and pirate stuff on ships and all sorts of crazy stuff. It's a really good book so far. <clears throat> But if I could just read a couple portions of this book to you, I'm going to hop over. He, uh, he knew that he was to go to the uh, other ends of the world. But before he finalized that, it says he debated the problem with himself all through the fall of 1809. Christmas passed, a new year came, snow lay thick on the ground. Then one day in February, coldest month of the year, a message came to him while he was walking in the grove. One can imagine him slowly pacing the snowy ground between the bare spectral trees, his breathing pluming in the frost, his mittened hands stuffed in his coat pockets. It may have been late in the afternoon with the pale sun low in the west and the first lights gleaming from under the eaves of Philip's Hall. He never recorded the day or the time of day. We know only that... Quote, it was during a solitary walk in the woods behind the college while meditating and praying on the subject and feeling half inclined to give it up that the command of Christ go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature was presented to my mind with such clearness and power that I came to a full decision. And though great difficulties appeared in my way, resolved to obey the command at all events. Every urge, every experience from the beginning of his life had brought its influence to this one focus. From this time on, he never doubted his destiny. As he began to begin this missionary society and this uh, missionary movement, it was actually the first day of it that he met a beautiful young girl that was serving him food in a house. And he ended up falling in love with her and asking her to marry him. And this is the letter that he wrote her father uh, as he asked for uh, his daughter's hand in marriage. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to exposure to the dangers of the ocean 
to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion, for the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamation of praise which shall redound to her savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? What a letter, huh? I went out to Chinese food with my future father-in-law like, so I kind of like your daughter. I mean... Like, maybe next year we could get hitched? What do you think, you know? He was like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Trying to get rid of her, okay. So, interesting, Nancy, this this beautiful girl that he'd fallen in love with, her parents left it up to her. Of course, their heart broke with the thought of her going to the heathen and never seeing her again. So she spent time with the Lord, and she wrote a private letter to her friend Lydia Kimball in Salem, and she wrote... I feel willing and expect if nothing in providence prevents to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. And then a female friend of hers who heard about this uh, um, determination said, a female friend called upon us this morning. She informed me of her determination to quit her native land, to endure the sufferings of a Christian among heathen nations, to spend her days in India's sultry climate. How did this news affect my heart? Is she willing to do all this for God And shall I refuse to lend my little aid in a land where divine revelation has shed its clearest rays? Nancy would eventually say, you know what? I'm ready to call it a wild romantic undertaking (laughs) to go to this mission of the heathen lands. I'm I'm not really going to read this whole book to you. I just marked a couple sweet spots that I read and wanted to share with you. So uh, they ended up um, getting the aid that they needed to go to India, and the, uh, there was a special ceremony where um, they were ordained to go out. There were about six men and their, and their wives being ordained to go out um, on this mission. And one of the pastors, one of the men of God that was sending them out wrote a special hymn for them. Let me read you this hymn. Go, ye heralds of salvation. Go and preach in heathen lands. Publish loud to every nation what the Lord of life commands. Go, ye sisters, their companions. Soothe their cares and wipe their tears. Angels shall in bright battalions Guard your steps and guard your fears. Landed safe in distant regions, tell the Burmans Jesus died 
Tell them Satan and his legions bow to him they crucified. Far beyond the mighty Ganges, when vast floods beyond us roll, think how widely Jesus ranges, nations wide from pole to pole. Last verse. While from heathen nations blended, light and peace within shall rise. When your days on earth are ended, Christ receive you to the skies. To his grace we now resign you. To him only you belong. You with every Christian Hindu join at last the angelic throng. Isn't that amazing? About 200 years ago, they knew that when they read of God's promise to the world that every nation, tribe, and tongue would be blessed by the salvation that's in Jesus, that one day this scene of revelation will happen. I like, while from heathens, nations blended. That's what, that's what we're reading of here in the book of Revelation. And one of the sermons that was given at that uh, was one special uh, message. And I'm not going to read the whole thing from the guy, just a little, little tiny bit. He said, go carry to the poor heathen the good news of pardon, peace, and eternal life. Tell them of the God whom we adore, of the Savior in whom we trust, of the glorious immortality for which we hope. We are not insensible to the sacrifices which you make or to the dangers and sufferings to which you are devoted. You stand this day a spectacle to God, to angels, and to man. You are in the act of leaving parents and friends and country. But dear brethren, we shall have you in the tenderest remembrance and shall not cease to make mention of you in our prayers. (laughs) And you might be wondering, does this thing go on forever? Just so you know, it was a really long ordination ceremony. (laughs) In fact... Afterwards, people like walked home and they fainted on their way home and almost died in the snow. Rescuers had to go. It was that long. And I'm not going to go that long with it. I know it feels like it. (laughs) But this author says, there was more. (laughs) Ministers and orators never feared to take sufficient time to make their points in those days. (laughs) In those days. Okay. And finally, this is what he says. This is the preacher that's sending him off. You are but the precursors of many who shall follow you in this arduous, glorious exercise. For the gospel shall be preached to all nations. And all people shall see the salvation of God. What a sweet thing to be a church that sends missionaries every year to the unreached heathen of the Himalaya mountains. What a sweet thing to be a part of a church that had a woman just weeks ago who was a successful x-ray technician, had all the comforts that California could give her, and she heard of the unreached of foreign lands, and she's given it all up to live in an uninsulated stone hut in the mountains of the Himalayas with plywood walls. No running water, a squatty potty that a man in the village himself constructed her her own private concrete western toilet 
so she could use the bathroom. And what a privilege to have gotten an email this week from a friend in Nepal who treks the Himalayas and who's had a team lost for the last 15 days. Can't be found. I don't know where they are. Somewhere lost in the mountains. And they're desperately trying to find them and they're joining the ranks of the Judsons. One day the mission of God will be accomplished. You know, missions is not the end of Christianity. Worship is. And one day every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be reached with the gospel. And what what will this scene be? (laughs) It'll be them clothed in white with palm branches in their hands. Crying out with a loud voice, verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God. Do you need to be saved today? There's only one place to find it. It belongs to God. He's the one who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne. And the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. And I hope you'll worship him with me as we consider the beautiful heritage we have with a missionary God as they cry out, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The choir of heaven has grown This is something like the fourth or third or fourth stanza in heaven of worship. And one of the elders answers saying to me, who are arrayed in these white robes and where did they come from? And John bats the ball back to him and says, sir, you know, I don't know. I think you know. And he said to me, yes, I do. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation." These are those that had been saved in the missionary movement while the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth. And he's washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Something so precious about the blood of the lamb is we have the worship team come back, come on up. The blood of the lamb. There's an old hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Have you been plunged in the blood of Jesus so that all of your stains have been washed away? Today we want to give you the opportunity to be Put in that cleansing flow. There's one thing we can agree on, whether you don't quite know who the 144,000 are or who this group is out of the tribulation. You know, gosh, is this now is this some sort of mid-trib rap? You know what? Here's, here's one thing that's the only thing that matters. How are we saved from the wrath of God? How are our sins cleansed? This is really all that matters. This is really the hill I'll die on. 
the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. All of the hazards from sin are dealt with. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. The word dwell among them literally means he'll spread his tabernacle out over them. His presence will just shelter them. For the lamb, verse 17, who is in the midst of the throne, the lion, the lamb, The lion-like lamb, he's also a shepherd. A caring shepherd who will lead them to the fountains of living waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Lord Jesus, thank you for this heavenly scene. Thank you for the parentheses here. And Lord, I know that there are those who come and fill churches every Sunday, American churches, Calvary chapels even. And they have never had their sins plunged. They've never been drenched in the salvation of Jesus. They've never had the cleansing flow wash away their iniquities. They've never been saved. They've never been born again. as much as you do care for the heathen in Vietnam or Laos or Cambodia or Pakistan as we prayed for Pakistan today you care for the sinner locally here that they would be saved from their sins, they would be given a new heart and a new mind, they would dwell and abide with Jesus forever and I want to give you the opportunity right now to receive forgiveness of sins and salvation in the Lord Jesus. Would you humble yourself before God right now and pray with me? Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm a heathen. I'm one who has lived my own way for my own glory, for my own pleasure, for my own advancement knowing many times that it is in direct opposition to who you are and how you say to live. And I hear today that you love me and that you have given your life for me and that you'll forgive me. And I ask right now for forgiveness. I ask right now for that internal change that Rory talked about. I I ask for a heart transplant, Lord. I ask for a new life. And I ask that you would bring me to the fountain filled with blood drawn from your veins, that you would plunge my heart, my life, my mind, my will in its cleansing flow, and that you would wash me as white as snow. Save me. I don't want to know the wrath of the Lamb. I want to know the salvation of the Lamb. I want to know the peace and the comfort of the Lamb. And I want the lamb to wipe away every tear. Will you stand with me today? And if you prayed that prayer, and 
if you've cried out to God and if you've surrendered to God, let's sing together and let's join this heavenly multitude. By the way, they're not there yet. We can sing with Revelation chapter five and they're not exactly there yet. But this is a song to be used to. It's a song to be familiar with. Worship to the Lord. And in the meantime, we're going to sing the songs that we know. Let's close with this song, exalting Jesus as a church and as the redeemed today.